Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, everyone. Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health and a major, major treat for you because we have a repeat guest and he's back again because he has, it is like physically impossible to condense the wisdom that this man has into an hour and a half or two hours. So we've got to have him repeatedly just to, and the concept is, is so foreign to almost every natural medicine clinician. I, I, I'm convinced, and perhaps Morley, Morley Robbins is our guest, and, and he can perhaps comment because he's better able to do that than me as a percentage of, of really astute natural medical clinicians who understand his work. My guess is it's about 1% or less. Yeah. I've only encountered outside of, you know, personally know one other physician who gets it, who's a really good physician, Leland Stillman, mm-hmm. who uh, you almost have to take his war, his courses to get this, but is the reason, you know, so what? Well, it's because he's going to talk about the importance of copper and iron and what the connection is and how it's really, it's just stealth and it's obscured by, for a wide variety of reasons. And it's just not appreciated, but it's a, it's one of the most important uh, elements to understand if you're going to optimize your health. And, and it's even worse than that because there's this incredible confusion about iron and it's perceived as, you know, as this panacea supplement that almost everyone should have when it's actually one of the worst things you could take for almost everyone. There are isolated cases where some people may need it. You typically with acute blood loss, large volumes of acute blood loss, but that's about it. Almost everyone has too much iron. So we're going to dive deep and definitely put links to the past previous two interviews I've done with Morley, but he's back here with some more exciting things. And we're just, you got to love these conversations because we know, no, there's no idea to predict where we're going to go, but we're going to cover some really important topics. So with all that intro, welcome. and Thank you for joining us again, Morley. Well, thank you. Very, very happy to be here. Looking forward to our exchange as always. And I would agree with you. It's, it's probably, a, it might even be less than 1%. And yeah, so that was my guess. Yes, my, my experience, but your experience is much broader. So, right. So let me let me stimulate your neurons with an article I just found this weekend, which I think is relevant to our conversation. And it's by. Oh, wait, before you share that, okay. let me give another because some yes. people may not have previously. And one, of the, he's just found an article. This man is finding articles all the time, and not only does he find the articles, he's spending three to four hours a day doing it. But he has a mind that is like a photographic. A, 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 a camera. It just remembers things and he doesn't lose it. I mean, sometimes he misses a few little details, but he remembers things. And so with that ma- a massive memory and a commitment to learning new things, he puts all the pieces of the puzzle together and comes up with stuff that no one ever has. So that's why you're going to be interested in hearing this. So with, so I just wanted to explain it because a lot of people may have not heard that or forgotten. Well, the, this article, I'm going to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's by a, a professor Dennis Medeiros at um, University of Missouri in Kansas City. Very very talented guy. He's a he's a copper expert. And in this particular study, he was looking at what happens when we deny copper to rodents. What genes turn off and what genes turn on? <laughs> it's really pretty cool. And this is from uh, 2009. But I think the the genes that turned off the downregulated 
is very relevant to our conversation. That's why I thought it would be fun to just start with this because I think people go, oh, well, maybe there's more to the story because that that's really the, I think that's the foundation of our conversation is there is more to the story. And it's important that people take the time to consider that as they are reflecting on their symptoms and the situation that they're in. But in this particular case, um, the copper deficient group had um, a, a decrease in a series. It was six different genes that downregulated. One was beta enolase. Mm -hmm. Second, carbonic anhydrase. Well, carbonic mm. anhydrase is very much involved in copper, I mean, excuse me, carbon dioxide, right? Yeah, it, it, I think it increases carbon dioxide, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's it does. Yeah, so, it, and that may seem like, you know, intuitively, oh, that's a bad thing. No, increasing your carbon dioxide concentration is one of the most important a really powerful strategy to improve your health. Exactly, exactly. And it's billed as a zinc enzyme and it's not, it's a, it's a copper enzyme. And I've got other research that can back that up. But then we've got aldose reductase one, very esoteric enzyme. It's the first step in breaking down fructose. Mm, that's right, yes. So what people need to understand is that there's a lot of fructose in their diet. We know that, we've talked about that. But um, the, the book that I'm, that's just tantalizing me is by Richard Johnson, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. He's a good friend. I've interviewed him a few times. Yeah. Very cool. He's actually been to my house, yeah. Brilliant guy. Uh, nephrologist. He understands, mm -hmm. he understands fructose. Um, but, but in his book, he, he points out that when we're under stress, the body flips to making fructose. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing to know. It isn't just what we, the fruit that we eat or the carbonated drinks that we're drinking that are sugar laden and things like, it's we have this natural ability to flip to a fructose metabolism, which is not our friend. It's, mm -hmm. it's very hard. And this aldose reductase one is critical in being able to metabolize fructose. Well, if you're, the, the dynamic is, and this is the pioneering work of Myra Fields, she was a famous copper researcher at USDA. She, for 40 years, was studying the impact of high fructose corn syrup on human metabolism. And she was alarmed at, at what fructose was doing to lower copper status in rodents and other models, mm -hmm. of course, in humans. So we've got aldose reductase, then we have glutathione peroxidase. That's one of the master antioxidant enzymes in the body that's copper dependent. Most people don't know that. Uh, initials are GPX. And it's a, it's a major um, process by which the body deals with oxidative stress. Number five, muscle creatine kinase. <coughs> well, that's really important. And so that suddenly we we're up against the fact that um, we're not gonna be breaking down the creatine the way we're supposed to if we're copper deficient. And then mitochondrial aconitase, which is involved mm -hmm. in iron, iron uh, metabolism in the mitochondria. So th that's a rather sweeping series of genes that are not working right because copper is missing in the diet and missing in the tissue. And, and I think, this, is this is related to fructose metabolism. Yeah. But what are, what's the total number of, of uh, proteins or genes that are dependent upon copper to function properly? I mean, it's, it's a pretty high number. It's in the hundreds, isn't it? Like 300 or so? Oh, it's at least 300. I think it may be even higher than that, but I've never really found 
a credible source to say yes definitively you know i would think that someone like leslie clavet would know or myra fields or even dennis medeiros or some of the you know um <clears throat> what's his name um garth cooper at the mm -hmm. university of manchester i've never seen any of these really preeminent um copper biologists and copper uh clinicians no one's shared that number i i think it's a much higher number than we realize okay. and, and again it's when we think about the 40 quadrillion mitochondria in our body and they all need copper it's absolutely essential that they have copper and it's just people don't they don't know that they don't they're not aware of it and it's, and it's not just the public it's their practitioners okay well let's stop there because i think it's nice to identify these half a dozen enzymes in the fructose metabolism pathway. And I'm sure you're going to you have more to share, but yeah. you just made a really, really powerful point because it almost is maybe not irrelevant, but close to irrelevant when you compare it to the mitochondria, because if your, if your mitochondria stop function, you are dead in seconds, seconds. You, you, if they're partially impaired, you're going to be craving energy and tired all the time. So you really, and I believe, Optimized mitochondrial function is the absolute finest and most effective and efficient way to improve your health. So, and it doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, there's, there's only like five electron or five cytochromes in the electron transport chain. And it, there's, I think only a dozen genes in the mitochondrial DNA. So just, just need a little bit off and you're, you're goner. So I think the reason I'm using it as a preface is to, before I ask you the question, which is, can you help us understand how copper is important at this. I think specifically you're gonna be point, pointing to um, ceruloplasm in, 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 in facilitating the iron implementation into the, the, the cytochromes. Absolutely, and so, yeah, <clears throat> copper and, and its master protein, ceruloplasm, are instrumental. It was interesting, it was, um, it was a famous uh, metal biologist, Earl Frieden at Florida mm -hmm. University. Uh, he was very prolific from the 60s through the 90s and um, very insightful about copper and iron dynamics. And he made an assertion in 1975 that ceruloplasm was a choo-choo train for copper to get to the mitochondria. And there was just this groundswell of resistance to that idea. And well, 2017, Zach Baker found out, yeah, Dr. Dr. Mm. Um, uh, Frieden was right back in the 70s. And so there's, there is this misunderstanding about how the mitochondria are being supplied with the copper that they need. And there's a whole network of, of chaperones involved, as you can well imagine. Probably the mm -hmm. most lucid mind on that would be Svetlana Lutsenko at Johns Hopkins Medical Center. She's very, very talented. She studied it very, very carefully. But I think what's important for people to understand is that it was um, Paul Cobine at Auburn University in 2004 and 2006 using mm -hmm. a yeast model. And, and again, yeast are mini mammals. It's kind of a fun concept, but he uh, asserted that the um, mitochondria, each mitochondria needs 50,000 atoms of copper in order to do their work. Well, that's very different than what people think. And if you read some literature, they'll say, oh, you have one or two copper atoms inside your cells. Like, no, that's not true at all. And so um, as I've dug into the mitochondrial side of the, of the um, process, <clears throat> complex one 
complex three, complex four, and complex five are copper dependent. Mm -hmm. And if given enough time, I could probably prove complex two is copper dependent, but it's mm -hmm. just, once you learn that the, the, the bulk of it is copper- It would make sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, it does make sense. And so what one, complex one, and complex three and complex four create is what's called the respirosome. They work together as a as a, a unit, and so they're and and what are they really uh, hooked up to? Is cardiolipin? Well, cardiolipin is the fat that's needed to support. That's the that enables the copper and the dynamics of the electron uh, transport to take place. And then we find out that with um, in twenty sixteen. Hammerling discovers that, wow, retinol is critical for moving electrons from complex three to complex four. Well, that's, a, that's an outstanding discovery and it totally changes the, di the dynamics. And so uh, I think it's important for people to, to step back from the narrative of mitochondrial dysfunction. And, mm -hmm. and it's a significant area of focus, mm -hmm. but I think it's more a nutrient deficiency than it is some mysterious um, esoteric dysfunction. I, I really think that the our environment yeah. outside our body and inside our body has become so um, depleted of copper that it's that's the secondary effect. It's affecting my, mitochondrial function. Yeah, and you mentioned cardiolipin, which is uh, I'm really passionate about. It's a very specific fat. It's my understanding is only present in the body in the mitochondrial in a mitochondrial membrane. That's my understanding. Yeah. And unlike a triglyceride, triglyceride means three glycerides, three fatty acid molecules attached to a glycerol backbone. Uh, cardiolipin has four, four fatty acids. And they're, the, the composition of those fatty acids are completely dependent upon what you are eating. And if you are like most people in this country and 20 to 30% of the fat that you eat is omega-6 linoleic acid, the, the high percentage of those fatty acids in the cardiolipin are going to be consist of linoleic acid. If you eat a lot of saturated fat or monounsaturated fat, then it's going to be that linoleic acid or palmitic or steric, you know, th that's what the chains will be. Now, why is that important? Because these unsaturated fats are predisposed to oxidation. And when you have oxidation in cardiolipin, you are destroying that structure, absolutely destroying it, decimating the ability of the mitochondria to function well, because they form these super complexes with it. And that means that these complexes you mentioned are, they're not, you see them in the illustrations, they're linear along of the cell membrane, the inner mitochondrial membrane, but actually it's a three-dimensional thing. And it's actually the, the cardiolipin forms the fold where the right. pictures, the folds are the cardiolipin. Yep. So that cardiolipin, that fold, that crystal curve gets destroyed. And then the, the, the complexes become more distant and they can't transfer those electrons as efficiently. And it destroys mitochondrial function or it's certain, not me that destroys, but it seriously impairs it. So I'm, I'm absolutely delighting in your understanding of the problem because you're, you're the only other person I've ever known that could describe in very specific detail what happens. And yeah. thank you for that. And I, and I think it's also important for people to know <clears throat> what's the match causing the oxidation. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's the other part of the equation. It's the iron. And what happens is when people get the, the, the um, 
the global dynamic that's <laughs> affecting health on this planet is that people are told they have low iron in the blood. The practitioner doesn't know that iron is high in the tissue. And then they give them more iron. And we're, what's the iron going to do? It's going to find its way to the cell. Then it's going to find its way to the mitochondria. And then there's this collapse in energy production. And that, that's the dynamic that's driving the excess intake of iron uh, throughout the planet, in my humble opinion. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't yeah. agree more. So uh, the only thing I would like to expand, we have discussed this, I believe, in our last interview, but just to give people, because this concept is so important. And you said it so quickly that I'm strongly believe and suspect that maybe 95% of the people didn't appreciate what you just said that because I certainly didn't for the longest time that the ferritin which is typically used to right, by almost all clinicians to identify the iron levels in your body. Now clearly they use other iron test parameters, but that, that's the most potent one people are using, but it's only the measuring the iron in the blood. They say, well, and you said in previous podcasts, I think it was 50 to 75% of the iron in the body is stored in the hemoglobin. Seven, is that, is that 70%, 70%. So that's a lot. That's a lot. But the, 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 this is the point that's confused me. And it confused me. And I just didn't get into our last interview is that understand that the red blood cells are not in the serum. They're, they're independent of the, they're essentially outside of the serum. So it, the, tr the ferritin and all the other parameters are not measuring the, the iron in that, in that blood or in your other tissues, like your liver or brain or heart. So it's so maybe expand on that because that is the just a crucial vital piece of the puzzle to understand before you get seriously confused like almost everyone else with these iron uh, uh, numbers that uh, the tests that are being done typically very very confusing because for for over a century hemoglobin was always identified as the marker for measuring iron status from mm -hmm. probably the time of the civil war up until 1972 and then in 1972, there was a sudden change in focus. It was like, well, we need to be focusing on serum ferritin. It's like Jacobs et al., uh, Journal of uh, 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 British um, Medicine, um, JBM. Um, they totally shifted the focus to ferritin. Well, again, when you get into the real sophisticated research, you find out that ferritin it's showing up in the blood as opposed to the ferritin in the cell, right? So when ferritin is showing up in the blood, it's being secreted by organs who are going, dealing with pathophysiology. Principally, it's the liver, but it may be the kidney. But, but what's important is that um, Warwood, W-O-R-W-O-O-D, a, a colleague of Dr. Uh, Jacobs, Arosio, Dr. Kell, are three world-renowned iron biologists who've all said, well, those proteins in the blood are empty. They have no iron. The protein is there. They're measuring the protein, but it's not, it, it's, it's considered an iron-depleted protein. It's not a source of iron in the blood. And the iron, that's the third marker that's measured in the blood, so we have hemoglobin is 70%. Protein in the cell is 10%. Ooh, in the cell, intracellular protein is 
Ten percent. Wow. Would that would that be the protein in the cytochromes? Primarily. Um, no. Or there other. A lot of it. A lot of it's the it's the uh, ferritin in the liver, which okay. is and it's building in the liver when there's not enough copper in the diet, but but the ferritin protein is about ten percent, and then one tenth of one percent of the iron, body iron, <clears throat> is in what's called serum iron. And that's supposed to be attached to transferrin. One-tenth of one percent. One-tenth of one percent. And it's working its way back to the bone marrow where it's going to be turned into new red blood cells. Well, what a great source of confusion in, in clinical practice is thinking that the, the measure of iron in the blood is equivalent to the measure of copper in the blood. And it's not. So again, for for focusing on hemoglobin, we have this bolus of iron that's that's showing up in the hemoglobin. Well, the the copper that shows up in the blood is only 1%. 47% of the copper in a human body, in a healthy human body, is in the bone marrow. 27% is in the muscle. So there's 74% Mm -hmm. of your copper is outside of the blood. But what happens is practitioners have been trained that when they see what looks like high copper, so let's chelate it, not knowing that it isn't just going to affect the copper in the blood, it's going to affect the copper in the tissue. That's where the real disconnect is. And so the ferritin protein has become, they've they've put bigger (laughs) spotlights on it, and there's more attention focused on it. And... I, don't, I think it's misleading because the, the ferritin, the loading of iron in ferritin that takes place inside the cell and the recycling of ferritin inside the cell is entirely copper dependent. You know, copper goes into um, the ferritin as a result of ferrooxidase enzyme function, which is copper driven. And then copper is needed to recycle that ferritin protein, break it down, let the iron out. It's a, it's a copper dependent process. And then people don't realize the, the role that, that copper chaperones are playing to move that iron where it's needed in the body. And the, and the, the principal uh, chaperone for iron in the blood, the serum iron, is transferrin. <clears throat> well, what did, we, what did we learn from Dr. Medeiros? That in the face of copper deficiency, we, we've, it, it's quite a surprise. I didn't share with you the nine genes that are firing up, but one of those nine genes is the transferrin gene. Well, transferrin is rising in the face of copper deficiency. Why? Because it's oleolein free. We've got to get this iron in a copper deficient state. We've got to get the iron out of the blood, get it back to the bone marrow, sequester it, because in a copper deficient state, it's very likely there's going to be a pathogenic attack. And that's the magic of this study is it's revealing, it's pulling the curtain back to say, who's going down, who's going up, and all triggered by iron uh, deficient diet. And then we can sync this this study up with Kim. Well, it's not iron deficient diet. Most people are having too much iron. Copper, copper, excuse me, copper deficient diet, copper deficient diet. And then we sync that up with uh, the research of Kim and Gonzalez from 2021, mm-hmm. there was a different model. They were using rodents 
denying copper, looking at, they were looking at 13 different genes, not the genes in this study, but the only gene that fired up in the face of copper deficiency was ferritin light chain. It's very different than ferritin heavy chain, which is copper dependent because it relies on ferrooxidase. And where is ferritin light chain found? It's found in the liver and it iron is building in the liver in a copper deficient body. And we've known that since 1928 with Hart, Steenbach, Waddell, and LVM at, at Wisconsin. But what Kim and Gonzalez did was prove it genetically. And that syncs up with what Dr. Medeiros finds in 2009. Again, the, I think what's important, the, the big macro for everyone in this conversation is to see the profound interaction that copper and iron have in our metabolism and that there is no iron metabolism, there's copper iron metabolism. And you can't make conclusions on iron status measuring just ferritin. It's a, it's a significant mistake that's made clinically. And you need mm -hmm. to look at all of the um, containers of iron. So hemoglobin, serum iron, and ferritin. But you need to look at the non-iron markers, like what's going on with zinc, copper, ceruloplasma, and let's look at vitamin A and D because they influence the bioavailability of the copper side of the house. And so that's where the, the focus of the, of the root cause protocol is to get people to step back from just that single ferritin marker and get a more holistic view of what are some of the other dynamics that are at play. <clears throat> no question. And uh, the... It, it typically has to do with the iron recycling program, which you alluded to, that when you see Absolutely. clinical markers of low iron, suggestive of low iron, right. it almost hardly ever is. Would you say it's fair to estimate that when that is seen clinically, that likely 99 times out of 100, it's going to indicate iron recycling dysfunction, most likely related to copper deficiency? I would, I would say it's 99.9. .9. Okay. So I was off by an order of magnitude no, that no. much. I did want to be somewhat conservative and thought I was being conservative by saying 99%, but that's crazy. I, I think it's, a, I think it's a one, trend. one out of a thousand. It's not going to be. So just bet your bottom dollar. Else you're really ever going to be wrong. If you got to able to pick up a clinical history of acute blood loss, which should probably be what comprised the majority of the exceptions I would suspect. I think you're right. About then, that. Yeah. So you're, you're going to be golden. So this, this contradicts almost every medical authority in the world. Right. So this is big. This is huge. Right. You know, this is a major claim stating that iron deficiency virtually doesn't exist outside of acute blood loss. Unless you have a history of acute blood loss, you are dealing with iron recycling dysfunction, more than likely related to copper deficiency. But now, Okay, put that in. And I've got a comment because we, we have, we shared, you were gracious enough to share, uh, allow me to send two clients to you and consult with. And that the, there are anomalies that, because there's, it's even more complex than we just said. But, but let me, let me highlight something that you're alluding to with heavy blood loss. <clears throat> there's, there's something called, I, I never heard the term until about a week, maybe 10 days ago, but a, a group of, um, Clinicians in India were studying mm -hmm. dysfunctional uterine bleeding. I mean, 
Deeply. <laughs> I'd never heard that term. And, but again, people know what um, heavy menstrual blood loss is. Right? <laughs> and so what they discovered is that the women who had this dysfunctional bleeding had a thicker uh, endometrium in their uterus, which you would expect, mm -hmm. but they correlated it with ceruloplasmin level, not activity. I would love it if they had also isolated the, um, the activity component to, to let us know how smart that enzyme was. But, but ceruloplasmin was low <clears throat> endometrial tissue or the, the wall thickness was high. Mm. And, and that makes so much sense because what do you find with um, heavy menstrual flow? You're going to find more estrogen. So estrogen mm -hmm. is making up for the lack of ceruloplasmin. So low ceruloplasmin, there's a backup plan because estrogen is mm -hmm. an antioxidant. So estrogen, if you're female, if you're female, you're female. Okay. <laughs> a menstruating female. Yeah, but uh, estrogen is going to be higher. But if you have low ceruloplasmin, it's a safe bet. As you were noting, you're going to have poor iron recycling. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of iron that's flowing through the uterine wall, just, just the very nature of it. And so iron is building in that tissue. So what does iron and estrogen like to do? Likes to grow things. So it's going to get thicker in the face of low bioavailable copper. So we have to be careful that uh, I would say that the heavy bleeding that you're talking about would be accident induced, not necessarily from menstrual loss. I think that's a that's a different could could so trauma trauma from trauma exactly. All right, so interesting because that, that typically, at least clinically, in my experience, which may be an anomaly, is uh, the most common time I would see a low a suggestion of iron deficiency would be in heavy menstrual loss because it's pretty uncommon. I didn't have a trauma practice. So I wouldn't see people who lost lots of blood that way. It would be more of in a hospital setting where you see that. Right. Um, right. So um, that is fascinating. So maybe we can uh, get into some of the complexities because that that's a pretty simple concept to understand. And if it's confusing to you, I would replay this video a few times so you can get it because it, it, it very likely may be confusing, but it's, I think you've profoundly simplified it. And if you listen to it a few times, I think you'll get it because that is really a foundational principle to appreciate because it, it, it's, a, it's a titanic shift of our understanding of iron physiology. And, and it's treat, more important to treat me because the end result of that misunderstanding is an, an acceleration of your life towards death and premature disability. Absolutely. Because iron is more, it's the spark. It's going to ignite that linoleic acid that's embedded in most everyone watching the cell membranes. And it's going to cause the oxidative damage and stress generating, spinning off all these free radicals and just decimating almost all the tissues in your body. So you've got to understand this principle because it's, and it's very few, very few of your doctors are going to understand this. They just don't get it. So, so we certainly send a video to them to help them understand it because they need to understand it. So we have the myth of iron deficiency. We have the myth that iron regulates itself. It does not. It is entirely copper dependent. When you get into the real deep research, you're going to find that <clears throat> copper is the general, iron is the foot soldier. Now, try to picture the Battle of the Bulge without Patton. Very different story there. And then the third is this idea that, that um, <clears throat> well, I feel so much better when I take iron. 
Oh yeah, that's an that's a compounding variable for sure. And and people need to track down Robert Hodges, 1978, and mm -hmm. did a masterful job of explaining what the deception is of iron supplementation. It's a six-week hit. Hemoglobin does go up. People are going to feel a little bit better, but it's only going to last for six weeks. And he was able to document it meticulously in the three-year study that he did with humans and was able to show exactly why they respond with this. But again, the key is any heavy metal, iron is a heavy metal. You, you make cadmium, right? Lead, any heavy metal is going to force increased red blood cells. I'm not entirely sure why, maybe, maybe you know, but, but there is this dynamic of heavy metals driving uh, more red blood cells to, I guess, deliver more oxygen to try to deal with the, the, uh, the toxicity. But the point is the increase of iron and the feeling better is short-lived and deceptive. And when did, when did the, all of the, the blood marker dynamics change in Dr. Hodges' study? When he introduced retinol, which makes copper bioavailable and hemoglobin took off and then retinol followed. And again, over the course of a three-year study, he was able to really meticulously show exactly what's happening inside people's body. And it, again, it, it was not iron reinforcements or iron supplementation, and it was medicinal levels of iron. He was, he was not holding back and it had no lasting effect for the uh, subjects in the study. And it was, it was the introduction of retinol that allowed the- Well, the I, I would counter that claim. It had no lasting beneficial effect. It had clearly continued oh. indefinitely yeah. and the absolutely unequivocal- Fair enough. Everlasting yeah. pathologic benefit or effect. Right, yes. Again, it's, it's like you're, you're moving from hit to hit to hit, but you're not seeing the metabolic- uh, devastation is taking place inside the mitochondria. And it just, and so I think the term is, it's like it's resistant to the iron or a refractory mm -hmm. resistance. And it's just yeah, the, body, the body doesn't know what to do with the iron because it doesn't have the general. If the general's not there to, to direct it and make sure that it's being chaperoned properly and being metabolized properly and recycled properly, that's where all the, the uh, complications of the symptoms begin to ensue. Yeah, well, let's expand on that comment you just made. The body doesn't know, all, need, doesn't know what to do with all this iron. Because many people, and they may have heard it on a previous interview that we did, but don't understand or realize that the body has essentially zero, zero, and no way to effectively, routinely eliminate iron excess. It just doesn't, it's not built for that. I suspect it's related to the fact that in ancient times, it was it was a reserve mechanism, a sort of life lifesaver uh, that uh, we had in case we got acute trauma. And that was common. They didn't have ERs and trauma centers back in ancient days, of course. So you had to have you had to have stored iron to rebuild your red blood cells. And if you didn't have it, you'd be dead. So I suspect that's the reason why. But the, the end result is we don't have a way to get eliminated. So okay. maybe you can span on that. We can talk talk a little bit about therapeutics that is essential to anyone who understands this, if they're interested in optimizing their lifetime, what they need to do. And again, it, it would be another myth. The myth is that, oh, I'm, I'm losing blood all the time. It's like, again. Yeah, right. Right. And, and so I've, I've read a lot of um, articles on iron, 
iron metabolism, copper iron metabolism. And every one of them, at some point in the article, it's usually in the first couple paragraphs, say there is no mechanism, hormonal, enzymatic, metabolic pathway. There's no way to get rid of excess iron. And I think what's what's really key is for people to realize that the, the bulk of the iron activity in our body is devoted to making new red blood cells. Again, every, every second of every day, we've got to make two and a half million new red blood cells to replace the ones that are dying. So in the course of 24 hours, we're going to make, you know, two billion red blood cells. That's a, that's a lot of red blood cells in the course of a 24-hour period. And so we, you and I have been talking for 36 minutes times 60. That's a lot of activity in our body. And it's what's really important for people to understand is that in the course of that 24-hour period, to replace all of those red blood cells, we only need 25 milligrams of iron. The average mm -hmm. person has about 5,000 milligrams in their body. Only well, that, is that true? That is that's the healthy, uh, the ideal, optimal. I understood. I would, it's 5,000 is required, I, but, this, but 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 anyone over 60 is probably closer to 25 or 30,000. Absolutely. And again, it's just in the literature, in the textbooks, they'll tell you it's about okay, 5,000. And then you talk to the iron biologist and it's a, it's a milligram a day times your, your age. So it's a much bigger number. But the important thing is that the, um, the amount of iron needed to support daily red blood cell replacement. I think I said 2 billion, it's actually 200 billion. But, but the, the point is the daily iron requirement, 24 of those 25 milligrams comes from the recycling system, 95% is coming from an internal recycling of iron that already exists in the body. And only one milligram a day is needed from the diet. And that's the origin of the one milligram a day as we age. And what's Accumulation. Exactly. And what's no. happening, yes. there's total silence about recycling. The reticuloendothelial system, I think, has been expunged from the clinical record and or clinical training. And so now because we live in this copper deficient environment, the recycling system is not as efficient. The serum iron is gonna show low under those conditions. The doctor is going to react with, you need more iron, when in fact, what you need is more copper. And <clears throat> the, the recycling system is dependent upon one iron doorway. It's called ferroportin iron doorway. And ferroportin <clears throat> entirely depends on a copper enzyme. It's called hephaestin. It's a copper protein that expresses the exact same enzyme as ceruloplasmin called ferrooxidase. And what hephaestin does is make sure that the iron gets out of the recycling macrophages as soon as possible, two and a half times faster than if copper is not present. That's a big difference. You know, two and a half times is really fast and making sure that the transferrin is ready to take that iron to the bone marrow. And that, that recycling system that's occurring all day long, all night long, is never factored into the clinician's interpretation of blood work, where they're just seeing low numbers and they're not thinking recycling, they're thinking replacement. And I think that would be a really important takeaway for people to, is to question, doctor, could it be that my recycling system isn't working right as opposed to my re 
my need for new iron. And, and I think that if people realize that the only way to really have true blood loss or iron loss, excuse me, as you were noting earlier, it is through a blood donation. Blood loss is the only way to bring iron levels down in the human body. And it's a, it's a conserved function, as you noted. And it's just, it's something that is not a part of our conscious thinking. And we worry about, we've been trained to think we're anemic and we've been trained to think we need to replace the iron. When in fact, the, the missing piece of the puzzle is bioavailable copper, which is copper in the presence of retinol so that the enzymes get properly loaded and get properly functioned. And it's, it's a central part of our physiology going back to the beginning of time. So almost everyone watching this, especially if you have a high ferritin, the, the, that's not really the confusion. There's very little dispute other than ferritin is an also termed an acute phase reactant. It tends to rise in, in acute inflammatory conditions. So it might be falsely elevated, but assuming you don't have that going on, right. if it's elevated, there's no question you have iron overload. The question becomes when you have low, because you could have a, a ferritin level of under 10, strongly suggestive of iron deficiency anemia. But we're going to talk about two cases shortly where, where that was the case. And they, they were the exact opposite. They were iron overload. So, and needed to do it. So almost everyone, unless you have an acute blood loss from trauma and that menstrual uh, dysfunctional uterine bleeding, uh, then you're going to need to have a program where you're do removing your blood. Right. The easiest and least expensive way is donating blood, usually a minimum of twice a year. I think Morley does four times a year, which is about the most one person can do right. if you're going to remove a whole unit. So the way to get to remove more is to remove less more frequently, which is what I do. I remove every week, every week I take out 60 cc's of blood, which is two ounces. And over a year, that's seven units of blood I can be able to get out instead of four. Uh, because it's so slow, your body adjusts in, in it more efficiently and there's not this drop. Because when you take a unit of blood, that's 500 cc's, that's like 10% of your blood supply. That's a lot. And you just can't keep on doing it without consequence. So that's the recommendation, you know, at least two units. In, I mean, that's the bare butt minimum for almost everyone. Uh, but, but most would benefit from four. And if you can have the ability to get blood drawn and done regularly, relatively inexpensively and conveniently, then I would definitely do that. Well, the, um, what might surprise you <laughs> is that in 2016, when I realized I had too much ferritin in my blood, it was 237. I don't like, mm. to, see, I don't like to see it above uh, 50. Uh, I prefer 20. But when it was 237, I donated six times every 60 days in, um, in that year. And everything kind of Self-correct. You, you didn't have really severe fatigue or any no. other dysfunction. No. I, mean, I that's think good. That, yeah, that's well, good well, to know. That really is good to well, know. My understanding is four was the limit, but but my but my hemoglobin when when I had the first blood donation was eighteen point three. So I was oh yeah yeah you had a lot of reserve a lot of reserve. <laughs> I was way yeah, over the way over the top, but I think what's important on the other side again the low ferritin. See, I think the high ferritin is a manifestation of liver dysfunction mm. spilling out into the into the bloodstream because the, the the recycling center of the of the hepatocyte of the liver cells is called lysosome that's that's true of any cell but the lysosomes in the hepatocytes are really important for turning over the ferritin 
to make the iron available for use. <clears throat> and when that uh, lysosome isn't working right, because copper's missing, ding, 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 uh, you're gonna get iron dumped into the liver and then the, the um, ferritin protein gets secreted into the cell. And that's the, that's the work of Douglas Kell and um, Etheresia um, Pretorius, uh, 2014, about inflammation. It's a very uh, thoughtful and comprehensive study of what is, what is hepatic inflammation all about, especially as expressed by high ferritin. Then the other side of the house, which is very confusing. Excuse me, can I, if I can interrupt for a moment, but please and keep it thought. Um, the hepatic inflammation, sometimes known as NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, yep. which is interestingly, you had started this conversation with talking about the copper deficient fructose enzymes. Well, fructose is one we previously thought to be the most common contributor of NAFLD, but also we know linoleic acid will do it too. So the two combos that are contributing to this iron destruction have been related to the other two pathologic components, too much fructose and too much omega-6 yeah. fat. The thing one and thing two causing all the problem, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, so the, the, low, the low ferritin is the most vexing. And I think what it really yes. involves is uh, the spleen, which is where the, the bulk, or if not all of the iron recycling is, is, is taking place, the, re, the red blood cell recycling is taking place in the spleen. And <clears throat> the word that I think is missing in this whole dynamic is hemosiderin. Hemosiderin is, it's called denatured ferritin. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means that the oxidative stress, again, it, it could be iron, it could be the linoleic acid, it could be the fructose, it's like multiple players. But the oxidative stress has altered the conformational structure and function of ferritin. And then it's able to hold 10 times more iron. And so in that situation, I, I would argue, ferritin levels are gonna go down in the face mm -hmm. of rising hemosiderin. And <clears throat> how many times do practitioners ever think about hemosiderin? I don't think they do. I, I don't know that they were even trained in its existence or even how to test for it. And so I think we have a, we have a, a, a classic example of missing information equals missing truth. And if you don't know that hemosiderin is alive and well in, in copper deficient bodies, and that's the work of Welch and Aust at uh, University of Utah, 2007, they, they present compelling evidence that hemosiderin rises in the face of copper deficiency. And again, it's because the recycling of iron is so critical to copper status, again, inside the lysosome. And the, and the chaperones involved in iron recycling are copper dependent. And again, that's not common knowledge. And it's, I think it's important for people to realize that there are players in this iron metabolism process that are not commonly known in practitioner circles. It's not a criticism of the practitioners. They, they just never received the, the full breadth and depth of the information that was being made aware on the research side of the house. It doesn't make it over to the clinical side of the house. And it's just 
we can we can certainly have a spirited debate about that. But the fact of the matter is there are missing pieces of the puzzle that aren't being factored into why someone's iron might be low or why their ferritin might be low. And again, the, the one that I think is in play in a lot of people is parasites. That and again, if you have low copper, you're very axiomatically, you're going to have high iron. And what, what's going to happen? The pathogens are going to take advantage of that situation. A high iron body is going to have lower energy. Well, pathogens are opportunistic. They're going to take advantage of that. And so I think it's just, it's another uh, facet of this discussion that is not openly understood uh, in the public or in the, in the practitioner circles. Yeah, so I want to address two points. One is the hemosiderin, and then I want to divert over to one of the clients that we both worked with, actually one as recently as this weekend. Uh, the first is hemosiderin. I didn't realize that it was denatured uh, ferritin and actually would result in lowered serum ferritin. So just right. two questions from this is, is there a commercial lab test of hemosiderin, either through LabCorp or Quest that one can do, or is it a research assay? And if that's the case, it would seem that it would be state of the art or really almost malpractice not to do a reflex hemosiderin level in someone with low ferritin. I'm not aware that there is a commercial test available. <clears throat> and I could just be lack of awareness on my part, but I have a feeling it's going to be an expensive test is if it is available. But I think in a concert with that, the practitioners and even the public need to start demanding, well, okay, let's do this hemosiderin, but let's also test my copper status and my serum mm, yeah, sure. and make sure that we have a, a more holistic perspective of what's going on in my body. Okay. So let's jump to the client we took care of yeah. this weekend, which is a really powerful illustration of how confusing this whole thing can be. Because this client has followed your work assiduously and, and mm -hmm. pretty much claims to have listened to every one of your podcasts, which is hundreds. And I don't, there's no reason to doubt her. So really uh, aggressive health nut and mm -hmm. has implemented most parts of the program, the retinol, the copper levels. Right. And understand, understood that what you said, the low ferritin levels are typically associated with parasites. The confusing part of that is that the, you would think, oh, parasites, I'll do a stool test, I'll do a parasite cleanse, and you know, I'm off to the races. No, these parasites are in the tissue, that, that not typically in your colon, they're embedded like in your liver and your spleen. And mm -hmm. the, the, you don't treat them with anti-parasitic drugs. You treat them by correcting the issue and your body eliminates them. So right. that's a confusing part, but it's important to understand that it is, it is contributed to by the parasites. So the, the other complicated, and I'll let you take over because it was just amazing. This woman had done just about everything. It's not, I said, I was on the right, all the right supplements and her levels were still low. And she had been donating blood mm -hmm. amazingly well, yet still had persistent ferritin level of eight. Right. Clearly a damaged reticular endothelial recycling system. Right. And you, I mean, I was just astounded at how magnificent a clinician are, which is astounding largely because of the fact that you have no formal training in this, but you, you carefully discern that her issue was due to emotional issues, which it's never in the differential for, for iron recycling dysfunction, any differential I've ever seen, but 
it was her number one issue. And then she needed an event, uh, an intervention that I was probably the biggest promoter of in, in my experience, which is EFT or emotional freedom technique. There's not to say it's the only intervention for her emotional dysfunction that would have would needed to be healed, but it's clearly one of the most effective and most commonly used. So why don't you expand on that? Because it was just, it, it, in my mind, it's, it's, Yes, this, this stuff is complicated enough to begin with, but it gets even more complex. So that's where you'll need someone who has been trained in your systems to understand that because, you know, you can do most of this stuff and you know, just using a shotgun approach as you described, it's going to take care of most people. But there are many others who are going to be really complex. Yeah. And in this particular situation, this individual had had a history of having low iron. She'd been exposed to a lot of supplements, not in the recent past, but historically. And she was and, a vegan. And she was a vegan, right? That only, that only adds to the uh, iron dysregulation. And so, and people need to understand that, that, that a vegan diet has no retinol. It might have, a, might have beta carotene. Unless you're supplementing. <laughs> Unless you're supplementing, right. But, but the average vegan does not, the, the sickest client I ever took care of was um, the vegan child of two lifelong vegan parents. And she was she was a hurting cowboy, but the point is, there there was history a history of iron issues in her past, and I would you know I zeroed in on if she'd had any you know uh, illnesses particularly COVID and that that didn't seem to be relevant, but what came up, uh, and I suspected there was something. I said, is there any emotional dynamic that's changed in the recent past, and then the conversation shifted, and she she brought forward that her mom was not well. In fact, I think her mom, I guess the phrase would be, my mom was dying. Mm -hmm. And and that is very traumatic for anyone to lose their mother, especially as an adult. And um, it, it wasn't just that, that she was having to experience her mom's eventual transition. It was, she was having to change her personality within the family to deal with the dynamic of all of this taking place. And that's a lot for someone to process. And what she was focusing on, as you recall from the conversation, and, and what most people do is they run to physiology and nutrition. What am I missing? What am I, what pill do I need to take in order to correct mm -hmm. them? And I said, well, what you need to do is dump your fear. And it was, that was the, uh, the shift in the conversation because she realized right away what the issue was, and what people need to really understand is that when we have unresolved emotional issues, or we're going through a traumatic experience like losing a parent or, or a spouse, that there's going to be uh, a, an emotional response, but it's going to trigger the emotion of fear. We're, we're losing control. And when, we, when people with high IQ start to lose control, they get fearful because they're no longer in control. Well, I spell fear differently. It's F-E hyphen A-R, so people can see the symbol for iron. Iron rises in an individual who is in a state of fear. It, it's, it's both, um, it, I mean, any farmer will tell you that um, acidic soil will absorb more iron. Well, when we go into a state of fear, we're becoming more acidic. And adrenaline is rising and cortisol is rising. Well, those are going to cause uh, an increase in iron. It's, it, it's absolutely a physiological response. 
And in the face of low copper, then you're going to have the kind of dysregulation that we witnessed. And I think it was a very important um, shift in the conversation when she realized that, that this was not going to get solved just through changes in nutrition or changes in understanding the physiology, that she was going to have to tackle the emotional side. And a lot of people, the vast majority of my clients, I'm not sure what you experienced, but obviously a huge proponent of EFT, which I think is it's an amazing modality. But a lot of people don't want to deal with their boogeyman. And I, I find it's central to the process of healing is to get these unresolved emotional issues out of the way because they become energetic barriers to allow the immune system to do what it knows how to do, which is make energy and make intelligent choices. But, but energetic blocks like emotional issues uh, invariably are going to get in the way of the process. And I, I think it was, a, it was so um, powerful when she realized what the true issue was. It was mm -hmm. like her whole being shifted at that point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the important distinction here is to understand, because many people watching this are familiar, at least superficially with EFT, is that there are two ways to do this. One is that you can tap yourself. Now, that has some benefit. But when you have a serious issue, potentially even addressing life-threatening conditions, you clearly need an in-person, not virtual, but an in-person, one-on-one, face-to-face connection with a human being that is really skilled at this. Right. And so that is a key differentiation you need to understand. There's many, many people who do this. So, you know, uh, you have to find someone and you may be hit and miss, you know, to find the right therapist because not everyone is a superstar, of course. Uh, but, and you may not, even if they were, you may not be able to connect with them and resonate with their frequency, but you, you want to find someone you can work with that's effective because it's, it's, it really is, is in my view, there was nothing when I was doing it and we did, we, we would not see a patient in my office in the two thousands, unless they committed to being evaluated by our, by our EFT therapist, because we knew that almost every single condition was related to this. What I didn't know at the time is that the, the mechanism, which it appears that at least in some cases, maybe you can comment on the percentage from your perception that the, when you have this fear and these other severe, overwhelming emotional challenges, it could affect the copper dependent enzymes in your body. <laughs> and once that's gone, then the copper starts to work and your body starts to function the way it was designed to. The most powerful article around these dynamics is by Zamin, Z-A-M-I-N, Pira. It's one word, Zamin Pira, 2019, talking about when we're in a state of fear, we go hypoxic and we have increased risk of cancer. And what that article does a masterful job of explaining is how adrenaline rises and how cortisol rises in that dynamic. <clears throat> adrenaline is a um, supercharger for oxygen and, and brings iron into the system to make sure that we're going to get that oxygen that we need <clears throat> to, to run from the bear. Um, but in an acute situation, adrenaline, it's wonderful. In a chronic situation, it's very destructive. But, but the other side of the house is the cortisol. What most people don't know is that that stress hormone triggers a four to five-fold increase in metallothionine. And metallothionine produced in the liver binds up copper a thousand times stronger than it binds up zinc. So basically mm. what we're doing is in, a, in a, an acute situation, you're going to be able to respond. But I think what's 
what is at issue now on the planet is a two and a half year chronic state of fear, mm-hmm. of uncertainty, where there's where our bodies are being pummeled with these stress hormones. However, we try to rise above it. It's physiological because when the body senses there's something wrong, it's going to produce those hormones. And so cortisol has a devastating effect on bioavailable copper status, to your point, is going to start to affect copper enzymes, not the least of which are the enzymes in the mitochondria to make energy. Well, what happens when we're under chronic stress? We start to power down. Well, when we power down, guess who's sniffing for the loss of power? It's the parasites and the, and the pathogens. They're opportunistic and, and they all respond to a low energy environment. And so when we're in a state of fear, Again, we, we have to be careful because we're very sophisticated about it. But when we're in a state of fear, we're worried that we're broken. We're worried that we are being punished from on high. And we're worried that we did this to ourselves. And that's a very unsettling sensation when you think, well, I was following advice and, and I still got sick. And that those are the three hidden emotions that I think are playing in this chronic state of of dysfunction that that are so effectively resolved in uh, the use of these um, techniques. And the beauty of emotional freedom technique, at least in my personal experience, is it was agnostic about what happened. Mm -hmm. The history did not change. But my perception and, and the energetic hold that it had was eviscerated. And it, and it was two sessions. I couldn't believe the difference in my sense of awareness and my perception of, the, of what had been a lifelong problem from the, from the age of six. And it was like, it was transformational. So I've, I regularly recommend it. And, and um, I'm in really inspired by the fact that that was the cornerstone of your practice, which was pure genius, because I would argue that every physical dynamic, every physical symptom has an emotional precursor to it. And it's just, people don't realize that it's that um, directly related. And, and your personal experience is very illustrative of the uh, typical d- dynamic that occurs in that A, uh, it's almost instantaneous. And uh, it, it's very common to have relief in two or even one session, even as little as five minutes. Yeah. I've had patients where their complete symptoms just disappear, but certainly within one, one visit, I've had many of those. Uh, and then others takes a longer time because you have to unpeel the onion, so to speak, and it takes a while. So uh, that was one. And it's just, it just, just so fascinating how it just, it's just almost instantaneously once it's done. Once you hit that final block, it's gone. It's just like someone turned the switch off. It's, it's, it's crazy good. So should I share my story? Would that help the audience? Do you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, everyone has a cross to bear and we Mm -hmm. have challenges when we're growing up. Well, well, uh, my dad was a manic depressive with schizophrenic tendencies. I mean, he was a very sick puppy. And when I was uh, four years old, he had double pneumonia and a large heart and, and was very sickly. He almost died. Well, two years later, Again, those conditions are caused by lack of copper. <laughs> but, um, but two years later, he was scheduled to have his second electric shock therapy session. 
So isn't it interesting, EFT versus EST? And so he was scheduled to, to have a second session. And if anyone's seen the movie Cuckoo's Nest, you know what is involved. Jack Nicholson. <clears throat> Jack Nicholson. And he, he said, that's not going to happen. And he ran away from home. Mm -hmm. So I was six years old. My dad runs away from home for two solid years. He has, nobody knew where he was. And the only reason why I knew where he was was when I was in my 30s, I was doing genealogy research and I contacted the Social Security Administration to find out what the records were on my dad. But, but the point is, when I was six, <clears throat> what do you think I thought? Again, the world revolves around a six-year-old. Well, I caused my dad to leave home. So I carried that wound for just 55 years until I did emotional freedom technique with a practitioner. I was actually doing it by Skype. I wasn't even face-to-face, -face, uh, Dr. McCullough. So it's just, it was, but it was- You a very, can't get improvements by Skype. It's just less than ideal. Okay, no, I get I totally agree. Yeah. But <clears throat> second- I did it in one visit if you did. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, but it was such a profound shift. And I mean, it was, uh, my world went from black and white to Kodachrome. And it's just, it was amazing. And it became obviously something that I recommended going forward. But here's the part that you may not know. So this was all happening in 1958. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Imagine my surprise when I come across the work of Dr. Martins and two of his colleagues from, he was at uh, Tulane University working with two colleagues from Harvard in 1959. They're doing research with ceruloplasmin one shot of ceruloplasmin administered to 34 patients with schizophrenia. And what do you think the outcome was? Good, really good. 30 of 34 patients with schizophrenia were cured with one shot. So what that tells us is that in the, in the dynamic of emotional uh, unrest, and all the behavioral disorders is dysfunctional iron and lack of energy. Mm -hmm. And that one shot of ceruloplasm was what it took to get these people stabilized, which I think is really powerful. Now, would I have found yes. that article otherwise? I, I don't know, but it was a very powerful moment. And I'm so glad I found it after I had done emotional freedom technique, because I don't think it, it rattled me as much as it might have otherwise. But I think it's important for people to realize the, the depth and power of bioavailable copper, because I don't think people would argue that there aren't many conditions that are more erratic and irrational than schizophrenia. And yet it, it was a stabilizing force for these uh, individuals back in 50. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable story in so many levels. Uh, but uh, you would think that, well, let's get some schizophrenic ceruloplasm. Well, that would be great, but you just can't do it practically because it's not available. It's, <laughs> so don't go looking. We already looked for you. It's not available only as a diagnostic assay. So it would cost you thousands and thousands of dollars per dose. So it's just not going to work, sadly. I mean, I guess, and in many of these, ceruloplasm is protein, but it, it's unfortunately or unfortunately, it's one of the largest proteins in your body. So it is not easy to recreate. Many of these peptides, a lot of the clinicians are using, those are easy to spin off unless you've got an intellectual property uh, issue, but you can create them in a, in a protein sequencer, but you can't do ceruloplasm. You could, but just be cost just as much. It's just not going to be possible. Very, very challenging. That's right. Yeah. 
So now the, the other point I neglected to mention, I said there was two points and I only mentioned one. The other point that of your story that was so consistent, it, it, it's it almost, it, the, the initial complaint that people come in with is, is typically perceived by the patient to be something relatively acute that right. just happened that triggered it. But invariably, almost in every single case, it always goes back to early childhood. Six oh. is a little bit old. Typically, I, my experience was like under five, but it's really, really close. Okay. So that's where the trauma started. And for some reason, childhood trauma is the thing. In, in fact, in my experience, clinically, almost every autoimmune disease has this emotional component. And, and I it was absolutely mandatory for every autoimmune patient to, to do the EFT because they, and it almost invariably we found the trauma below, below six, you know, seven, six, five years old or even earlier. Because somehow that's you're just your adult skills aren't evolved and the, right. these traumas are just massively exacerbated to the point where a, a curse word or look, even just a look by a parent could be exponentially orders of magnitude worse than being assaulted sexually many times exactly. when you're older. Absolutely. Yep. No, very powerful. I and mean, I think, you know, to your point, I think back on what, what was really traumatic prior to that was when I was four. I went to see my dad in his hospital room, uh, Union Memorial Hospital, and he was in an oxygen tent, and he looked really scary. I mean, it was, I mean, as a four-year-old, I was really, I was, sure. I was traumatized. Sure. And maybe that set the stage for what happened. Yeah, later. that could have been the initial trauma, that, and then the others were just, you know, just flowed from it. Exacerbated yeah. it. So I think it's important so I, to realize how yeah. powerful this emotional cornerstone is for recovery that they, they, yeah. they, everyone loves to pop pills. They don't like to, they don't necessarily like to dump iron and they don't like to dump their fears, but those are the two that invariably get in the way of uh, full recovery. Which is what I want to ask. This is really important component. And I don't ever recall you discussing this and perhaps you did. I suspect you did. Cause I, I've not watched all of your videos, previous interviews, but in your experience, what is the percentage of people with iron recycling disorders and copper deficiency mm. that have this fear, this this, this wow. dysfunction in the adrenal cortical system that's contributing to it. Is it like more than half? Is it most? Is it a few? What's a, you know? What's your experience? That's a great question. I'm, I've never really thought about it. I would say it's a majority. It's certainly okay. more than half. It might be three quarters. I, you know, it's. A, Okay, so it's up there. It's, up there. it's a significant piece of the puzzle. And anyone who has what they perceive as iron deficiency, they've been, again, I've, I've talked with, you know, a lot of folks, as, as I know you have, who have this perception that they're anemic. But when mm -hmm. they're anemic, it, it really plays on their psyche. It means that mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not normal. I'm not healthy. I'm not full. And, and I think it really... Um, it becomes this source of erosion of their confidence in themselves and in their body and their body's ability to keep them properly optimized. And so I think it's, I think it's a really significant percentage of people who have this history of low iron in the blood. And there are many, many people out there like that, not knowing that it really stems from mineral dysregulation from the stress from their earlier life or from other stresses that they're experiencing, even as adults, it's, it's having an, a significant impact. Now you've written a book that des describes your, your 
uh, process in more detail, which is the root cause protocol. I believe that's the only book you've read, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's right. It's called Cure. 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 I thought, yeah, I know it was the root cause. Yeah, Cure. I thought that I, C was obviously copper. <laughs> so resist, right? in that book, I don't recall, and perhaps it's there because it was a while, a few years ago now that I read it. Did you discuss this? the fear and the EFT intervention is being important for the majority of people with this issue? I, I did, but it wasn't okay. a cornerstone. I, I think in, in, if there's going to be a subsequent edition, maybe in a year or two, I'll spend more time really okay. fleshing that out only because I think. Because yeah, it didn't impress me as an issue. I just, I, I missed it. Well, we, we talk about the importance of doing EFT. I probably didn't stress enough how significant it is to be a disruptor. Yeah, I would definitely go into the mechanism because the mechanism is absolutely fascinating that you dialogue. Very impressive. So let's transition into our second client that we are working with, which you haven't seen yet, but you will be seeing in the upcoming event. Uh, But you know our history. Um, Interestingly, same ferritin level as the first client. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Serious problems and actually related a part portion of her history prior to our, our conversation today. And in my mind, the most significant issue is you had a gastric sleeve and boy, that's all you, you need those two words and boom, that's the cause. Yeah. So, and a lot of, I don't know the number of percentage of people who have these operations. I suspect it's just grow exploding because obesity and is just, it's, it's incredibly, by the end of this decade, they project, one out of two people will be obese, not overweight, obese. Wow. So more and more people are looking for quick fixes and there's a lot, there's not many quicker fixes in the gastric sleeve or some derivative of that. Okay. So, well, help us understand why, if you are considering this or you have this, you are almost guaranteed to have iron dysregulation. Exactly. So the um, gastric sleeves, gastric bypass, um, it, it's actually fascinating if people were to Google gastric bypass and look at the picture associated with it, you'll see very quickly that sign- a very important part of the intestine is, is literally bypassed. It's called the duodenum. The duodenum is a section of the uh, small intestine where the minerals are taken up, especially copper and iron. There are other miles. We're, we're talking about these two in, in particular. And a very noted um, uh, gastroenterologist, uh, actually, I think he's a GI surgeon. He's at Mayo Clinic. His name is Naraj Kumar, K-U-M-A-R. He's written extensively on this dynamic. He sees it regularly in his practice. And he's um, very aware of, of copper, copper enzymes, how important it is in the human physiology. And what people don't realize is that, again, we're, we're talking about, when we talk about copper as the general versus iron as the foot soldier, we're talking about 100 milligrams of copper is regulating thousands and thousands of milligrams of iron. Well, that, again, that, the analogy holds. That's what, that's what generals do. They, they tell tens of thousands of soldiers what to do. And so when the general is being restricted in its uptake, in the very section of the intestine that, that knows what to do with it and get it into the bloodstream to get it to the liver where it needs to be mo- activated and mobilized and put into the cerebral plasma 
uh, protein. And, and there's a wonderful article by, again, Earl Frieden, 1968. Uh, it's in Scientific American. So it's written for the individual. You know, it's written for the public. And he has a wonderful picture in that uh, article. If, if people have ever seen pictures of the liver, they know that it's like a triangle. And there's a, a big section and there's a little wall and then there's this little tiny triangle. Well, guess where the ceruloplasmin gets loaded? Loaded. It get, gets loaded in that little triangle. And he, he explains exactly where it's happening, why it's happening. And that cannot happen if copper can't get into the liver because it's not getting into the duodenum because it's not getting into the circulation. And this is... Um, all you need to do is, is go to any search engine and put in gastric bypass or gastric sleeve, copper deficiency, and you'll see dozens of articles that describe it. The, the difficulty, though, is they typically will talk about this situation as a one-off. Well, here's a case study of someone who got gastric bypass. Anomaly. Here's, anomaly. Another, here's another case study, another anomaly, yeah. They don't say... If you're thinking about gastric bypass, maybe you want to really understand what that's going to do because you've got to follow it all the way through. If copper is becoming restricted in its uptake, it's going to affect all of the iron recycling, all of the iron metabolism, all of the iron chaperoning that takes place. And that I don't think the average GI surgeon is aware of that. They just know they've got a client who's presenting with excess weight, and this is an accepted procedure, y, YBG, no, YGB, YGB is an accepted procedure, and Y is the name of the French surgeon who invented it, but uh, YGB, and, and they just, but, but what's amazing to me is there's no comment, just like there's no comment when someone has their gallbladder taken out, when was the last time the practitioner said, well, you know, when you have your gallbladder taken out, you better start taking choline and you better start taking mm -hmm. some additional uh, enzymes to support your, your digestion. There's no comment about the gastric bypass or the gastric sleeve that this is going to affect your iron metabolism because copper is going to be MIA. And the, and the part that people need to understand on iron absorption is it's a two-step function. Mm -hmm. So the iron needs to get into the duodenum and it can be challenged because of the, the sleeve or the, or the procedure itself. But the more important piece of the um, process, the second step is getting the iron out of the enterocyte. So enterocyte, it's the cells that allow nutrients to come into the tissue, but they've got to get out of the enterocyte and into the bloodstream. And the doorway, we're back to that ferroportant doorway. And that ferroportant doorway, which allows iron into the bloodstream, works with a copper doorman. And if Hephaestin is not present to open up that ferroportant doorway, then the, the uptake of iron is going to be low. And where is, it, where is it going to be taking place? It's going to get stuck in the enterocyte. And that's what leads to conditions like colitis, and Crohn's and irritable bowel, mm. and all of that is iron building up in the digestive tract, and it can't get out because the copper doorman is missing to open up that critical iron doorman. 
That is fascinating. I never realized that iron pathology was part of that process. And interestingly, two of those conditions, like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's colitis, um, are both autoimmune conditions. And I said, mentioned earlier that oh, in my clinical experience, autoimmune conditions almost are invariably related to emotional trauma. Right. And so there you've got the mechanism, emotional trauma is contributing to the copper deficiency. And, and in, in the world of animals, <clears throat> the, the veterinarians deal with these same issues in animals. And, and the condition of Crohn's in animals is called Joni's disease. Mm-hmm. J-O-H-N-E-S apostrophe S. Joni's disease and Crohn's disease are identical. And here's the catch. How do veterinarians treat Joni's disease in sheep and cattle and horses with copper? Oh, interesting. That's, that's the only treatment is copper. Put more copper into their feet. Hmm. So that would suggest that Crohn's, same thing. Okay, this is, this is fascinating. Just a, just a quick question on the mechanism. You had mentioned with the gastric bypass, the duodenum was bypassed, where the, the minerals are absorbed. Interestingly, right. the iron is absorbed too, so you think that would be somewhat partially protective, but but it, it's, it winds up in the enterocytes, which makes the whole thing worse. So, But the issue is, it, is that the same mechanism with gastric sleep where they just remove a large section of the stomach? So your volume in your stomach is radically reduced, 75, 80%. You can't just physically fit more food in there. So, But the duodenum is, is untouched. So is it just an association or... Are you have any suspicion of how that mechanism, what, what the, why that occurs when you reduce the volume of the stomach? Surgery? I would imagine that, um, and again, I don't, I don't know because you're raising a really important distinction there. Um, I would have, a, I would assume that there is absorption taking place in the stomach in addition to the duodenum, and that. Um, Oh, okay. So because it, for those who don't know, anatomically, duodenum is the next level of the stomach. It goes from the stomach into the duodenum. Exactly. And I'm wondering if the sleeve in some way disrupts the duodenum. Or some um, type of factor. That, 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 that makes sense. I, I'm just perpetually really, curious. Well, think about, like, think about the, putting a sleeve on the stomach. Again, we, I remember a, a physician telling me that um, when you use a, a proctoscope, that there's an inflammatory process all the way up to the mouth. That there's a reaction. There's a there's an anatomical reaction to that uh, intrusion okay. equipment uh, all the way up. So I'm wondering, could the sleeve around the uh, sleeve, inflam- secondary inflammatory condition in the duodenum impairing? That, the, the could could that just be a, a response to to that procedure? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's go into bear off before we sign off. Uh, the, it's become abundantly clear unless you're like sleeping under a rock or you weren't listening, fell asleep or something <laughs> that you need to have copper. You need to get, first of all, we talked about getting the iron out. That's pretty straightforward. Almost everyone, unless you have acute trauma needs to have the iron out on the, on the pro- protocol process we described previously. But let's talk a little bit about cop- copper augmentation and retinol because those are the other two pieces of the puzzle. You've got to get the copper in. Right. And you don't want there are some people out there in this space who've written, actually written books, and I don't want to name names, but they're recommending really high levels of copper, like 100 milligrams or even more of copper a day. Right. And I know that is not your recommendation at all. And you kind of cut it off at 10. 
and are pr pretty fond of getting it from foods. I, I personally think you should be getting copper from foods. And that's the, I don't take copper supplements at all. I was able to get it from foods and I have some vast, pretty impressive energetic anal anal analysis that confirms I don't need it. Otherwise I would be taking it in a heartbeat. Almost everyone I know and believes yep. this is taking copper supplements. You're probably going to need it. Uh, but there's one that's incredible in our last interview. You just blew my doors off by helping me understand why it was so important, but you were a big fan of copper bisglycinate, which clearly is the, is the specific type of copper you want. Cause it's copper is there. It's the, you, but you need to complex it and chelate it to another anion. So uh, the glycine, the beautiful thing about copper it, with copper, cause it has a valence either plus two or plus four. And the higher the valence, the more difficult it is going to the cell because the charge is going to repel it. Right. So the, the, the valence of copper bisglycinate is zero. So it easily penetrates and you absorb it, which is what you want to do. And right. you like 10 milligrams. Yeah. So that's my summary. So once you talk, expand on that and, and mention the retinol, you got to be careful of it, but you almost everyone's going to need retinol. I don't take it either because I get it from the food. I'm, I'm not because I got yeah. it from, from beef liver and or beef organs, put it that way for a few years. Just, so just for the record, I want to remind you that you do owe me a, a bucket of acerola cherries. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I know. I, know. <laughs> yeah, I should have, you know, the, the we went with, since our last interview, we actually physically met at a conference and unfortunately yeah. the time didn't work out. And then shortly after that meeting, you were probably aware of that hurricane Absolutely. Ian hit us and it literally pounded, pounded my, my cherry trees, my oh, cherry trees. So they're almost out of production. They did survive and they will be back. So it's not going to be this year. I will, I will make through on that, that, that promise. Well, promise okay. I got so many friends that want them. It's like, you know, that, uh, actually, two of the clients that I sent to you, I, I really. Well, I'm, I'm a patient. I'm a patient guy. I'll wait. I can't wait. Okay, you'll get you'll get them for sure. But in terms of uh, traditional food sources, if you if you go back in in the annals of uh, food sources, you want copper. You get nuts, seeds. You know, wheat products would have copper. Uh, organ meats, of course. But um, nuts and seeds are high in LA, so you got to be careful. Yes. And oxalate many times. So, you know, there may be better sources like copper bisglycinate. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, and, and so I think it's important for people to realize that when they're making these food selections based on nutrient tables, they, they've got to wonder, is this still valid in 2022? Has the, right. has the soil composition changed? And so historically, what we've uh, suggested to people is, you know, bee pollen is a, it's a very important source of B vitamins, but it's also... You, you can't pollinate a flower and you can't pollinate an animal without copper. It's really important. And so bee pollen, uh, again, historically has been a, a rich source, uh, real vitamin. And it's bioavailable. I mean, it's really, Absolutely. really important because remember, it's, it's not just copper, copper but, sulfate, oh, no. you know, copper sulfate, you'll get some, but not like the copper and copper and bee pollen. Exactly. But the thing is the, the, the color of bee pollen tells you it's got copper just right away. Um, but it mm -hmm. also, Suggests that there's other nutrients as well, but real vitamin C. If people didn't know, copper is blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But but the thing is, again, the, the acerola cherry that's a very rich source of uh, vitamin C, among other factors, and so that's a very rich source of tyrosinase, and tyrosinase has high levels of copper in it. So that's secondary poor source. What we've historically said in the, in the root cause protocol is organ meats, especially liver. And again, historically, a grass-fed animal 
especially a, a, a grass-fed cattle, is going to have more copper in its organ than it's going to have in its liver organ than it's going to have iron. But again, we're we're challenged in the modern era with the modern farming chemicals that are affecting copper status. So that's why we're having this conversation is to say, well, those are historically good, but we may need additional because um, there's been so many compromises in the environment. And the, the part that you're highlighting is this copper bisglycinate. The article that I mentioned earlier by Earl Frieden from 1968, it's, the title is The Biochemistry of Copper. He makes mention of three states of copper, three valences. Again, copper one, usually found inside the cell, copper two found outside the cell. But, but what he highlights is this copper zero, it's called copper neutral. And that's the copper that is being used in copper bisglycinate. And it's immediately absorbed by the tissue. And that's the source of copper that we're using in the supplement that we've developed called recuperate. And again, it's a play on words, recuperate. And it seems to be working wonders, especially for people with long COVID. And they take that supplement and it's like they're back in the game. So I think that it's important for people to know that there are options out there. Um, NIC has something called copper hydrazole. You know, it's a great source of copper. Dr. Pickard out in Seattle, Washington developed a copper cream copper uh, GHK peptide, and it's a 3% luxury cream. I regularly recommend those in addition to uh, the copper bisglycinate, just because I think in this very stressful modern era that we're in, and we're, I don't think we're out of the stress yet. Um, I think as long as we're above ground, there will be stress. And I think what's missing, the biggest source of stress in our body, I would argue is oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. And if we can't turn oxygen that we're breathing, if we can't activate it and turn it into water to release the energy molecules, that becomes a great source of stress in our body. And when, and when that activation can't happen, it's going to affect iron recycling, and then the iron is going to start to build in our tissue. And so it's, it's just this one-two punch. As soon as copper is compromised, iron and oxygen are going to get out of regulation and it's going to create lipid peroxidation and it's going to create all sorts of metabolic dysfunction, energy loss. And that's where people need to to really connect these dots is that when we're in a stressful situation in our world, we're going to have oxidative stress in our body. And I think what we're trying to do in these conversations is introduce people to a parallel universe of how the body really it stays in balance, how it stays in homeostasis by regulating iron and oxygen. And there's only one element on the planet that does it, and that's copper, especially bioavailable copper. And to your point, what makes it bioavailable are two critical enzymes that are called copper pumps. One is called ATP7A, and the other is called ATP7B. The, the conditions that are attached to those, 7A is Menke's, 7B is Wilson's disease. But what's important for people to know is that those enzymes are critical for, throughout our body because ATP7B is instrumental 
in making ceruloplasmin, loading those eight copper atoms inside that protein so it can work its many, many functions in the body, the antioxidant functions. And then 7A makes a whole host of enzymes, probably a dozen or more, that then influence hundreds of other enzymes. And one of the principal enzymes that's influenced by 7A is tyrosinase, dopamine beta monooxygenase, the PAM enzyme, um, the, the, the whole mechanism of creating superoxide dismutase. These are powerhouse enzymes in our body that most people don't know about that are all copper dependent and ATP7A and ATP7B need retinoic acid, which comes from retinol, not from beta carotene. It's gotta be converted into retinol so that it can go through a conjugation and become these hormones that are called retinoic acid. They're very powerful and they are what enable these copper pumps to do their uh, work and they perform miracles in the body responding to oxygen stress and iron stress. And this is the hidden piece of physiology that I don't think is stressed enough in, in uh, the training of doctors. Thank you for sharing that. I'd just like to clarify, at least from my perspective, the copper recommendation. And because I don't want people to be confused about this, the recommendations for the, the optional forms of copper, like copper hydrosol and some, the, the peptides and such, those were in addition to, not in place of the copper bisglycinate. Thank you. You've got to have that as the crux. Right. And in fact, I think most people would be safe than sorry. Uh, ideally, you want to get it from food. No question. That's how I got it. I mean, basically, my, I got my copper because I have an acerola cherry tree, which is has yeah. tyrosinase, and it's got whole food vitamin C, not ascorbic acid. It's whole food vitamin C. Ascorbic acid is in there, but it's with all those other 150 phytonutrients that facilitate the, that are really the critical part of the, the complex. And so I got plenty of copper uh, in addition to that. Vitamin C works in the that too, that process. And I got vitamin A, retinol, not beta carotenes. I got retinol because I'm eating a quarter pound of ghee a day and have been for years. So that's key. So I, I don't need to take supplements. Most people are not doing that. It's relatively unusual. I suspect you can count on one or two hands the number of people who don't need a supplementation of this. So don't think you're one of them unless you're doing something similar to that. And go on the copper bisglycinate. I mean, it's really, really, really important. Uh, along with looking, it, it, it emphasizing, which I had no clue until this conversation, that literally it's more than likely you have an emotional challenge. I mean, if it's it, oh, yeah. 25, 45% chance that you don't, I mean, it's, it's a significant, but likely, more than likely than not that you have one. So that needs to be addressed. Otherwise, you can do the best things. You can have the optimal supplementation and it's not going to get better. Yeah, no, I, I we're, we're living in a very um, charged time. We know that there's uh, forces in play that we have no control over. And again, we're back to people with high IQ like to be in control. Well, we're not in control. And so that creates stress right away, right out of the blocks. And we just, these are, are very uh, turbulent times. And so I think the benefit of these conversations is giving people the metabolic bedrock of how does, how do symptoms actually start? Well, they start because we're not making enough energy. We're not making enough energy 
because we have a mismatch between copper and iron in the mitochondria. And that's really where it, where it all originates. And it's just, yeah. it's, a, it's a foundational part of our physiology. Yeah, thank you for being such a pioneer and teacher in this area. You know, most of us got, I've been in understanding the dangers of iron for longer than most people, uh, over 30 years I've known about this. Uh, but I did, you know, it was relatively superficial appreciation and was absolutely ignorant of the, the, the crucial importance of copper. No idea how important that is in retinols. It was, we've explained this presentation. So for those who want more information, obviously you've got to book Cure, the root cause protocol, uh, and you have a website and you have teaching courses. So tell us how people can do that. And I think you have, I don't know, one or two training, training sessions a year where you get that. And, and this is not necessary for you as a listener, but certainly your clinician. But if you're, if you're an enthusiast and passionate about this, certainly do that. But but we really want clinicians to understand this because they their their responsibility is to educate their patient population. The more more people, most everyone needs to understand this. So, in addition to recommending to your course, because you know those are the clinicians who are going to help the people who are in the complex scenarios of the two clients that we discussed. But everyone else, you know, you could just listen to this inter our interviews, and you can probably get it yourself. But why, why don't you tell how people will want more information, want to get trained, what they can do? Yeah, the, the website is RCP, you know, root cause protocol, rcp123.org. Uh, or you can go to therootcauseprotocol.com if you want to get more formal about it. But a lot of information in there is a resource section that has you know, the um, 81 posts on iron toxicity. It has the hundreds of uh, YouTube uh, podcast videos that I've done over the years. But as uh, we're just pointing out here, there is access to the training. It's called the RCP Institute. And it's a 16 week course where we go into the depths and breadths of what, what we're talking about in these conversations. Um, we just finished up um, group 16 just finished last Thursday. Uh, enrollment starts today or it might be tomorrow, but I think it is going to open up. Uh, well, this is going to be, this is not going to be posted okay. today. Well, by, by, the time this, by the time this, this conversation takes place, the enrollment will be open uh, as of, as of uh, early, uh, early November, excuse me. And we look forward to to people being a part of that. Again, it's the 16 week. When is, when is that training again? The training starts February 9th, which is a Thursday. Oh, so plenty of time, to, plenty of time. So yep, far. absolutely. And it's every Thursday afternoon from three to 6 p.m. Eastern. And we have- Three hours, 16, so three to, 16 have, times three, that's 39 hours of, of training. So we've got people all over the world, all over the mm -hmm. world are, are in these classes. We typically have, 10 time zones in the class and uh, people from all walks of life, a lot of practitioners, as you can well imagine, but not exclusively practitioners. There, there are quite a few moms that just want to figure out how do I get my family well? We've had many mm -hmm. moms go through it. But the important thing is the training is out there and it gets better every year. There's, it's a very structured program. There's live classes. There's a recorded video. There's case studies. There's reading material. There's uh, tutors to do, um, we break the class into smaller groups. We had uh, 220 students in the last, 
in group 16. We're expecting that many or more. It's going to be somewhere between 220 and 300. We think we're going to maybe crest 300 this uh, coming group 17. Great. Very, very excited. And so people are looking for that, would, would really enjoy it. There's also a an RCP community, which you can access through the website, and you can participate in our biweekly Q&As, and we have webinars. And then um, for those who are into social media, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. And you know the Facebook uh, group has um, almost 300,000 members in it now. And the Facebook page is really focusing on the nuts and bolts of the RCP. And it's a great place for people to get started to, to learn the, the nuance. And the other thing that people can do is when they go to the, the website, uh, there is a way to download the RCP handbook. Uh, you, you donate your email address, we'll respect that, but we'll give you access to the 50 page uh, download and the stops and starts are laid out there, the phasing of the starts. Uh, it's especially um, well described. And then we give recommendations for the different um, nutrients that we recommend for people wherever possible, food base. But there's a lot of information that's out there. And like we've said earlier, it is a, it's a whole other dimension of healing based on minerals, based on understanding stress, based on understanding the impact of, of emotional stress on our physiology. And it's having a lot of success with people who are really finally untying their knots and, and finding that they are getting back into balance in a very natural way. Well, thanks so much. Morley, appreciate all your pioneering efforts and especially helping us understand, identify the fundamental contributing factors to mitochondrial dysfunction and how to address it relatively easily uh, with simple steps and uh, for teaching it to others. It's been great. And I look forward to uh, continuing dialogue with you and uh, essentially sending you some acerola cherries. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for the opportunity to have this series of conversations. And then we got to roll up our sleeves in the new year and and, and get this serious. Absolutely. So I look forward to that. All right. Thank you again. All right. Well, thanks again. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye.